0: Good Monday morning. It is Kale & Company live. Great to have you along with us. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today here on WKXL. 1450 AM, 1039 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester. And streaming around the world, around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. And uh, we welcome back to the show... The head coach of the UNH football Wildcats, Rick Santos. Rick,
1: good morning to you. Hey, Ken. How are you? Thanks for having me again.
0: I am doing well, but I don't know if I'm doing as well as uh, as you are, Rick. Uh, congratulations, two in a row now uh, for the uh, the Wildcats with the win, twenty eight twenty three on the road Saturday night against the Great Danes of Albany. So, uh, head coach Santos, what uh, what stood out to you in that one? Well,
1: first. It feels good to get a win on the road in this conference. So much parity and it's uh week in and week out. It's very it's always challenging to find a way to come out with a W. I thought our guys battled extremely hard. Um, you know, they Albany had got us five out of the last six times, so they had our number a little bit. Um, you know, it was a hostile crowd there and they did a good job kind of getting them those guys motivated. But I thought we did a really good job coming out to a fast start. You know, we got a three and out on defense and then we went eighty eight yards. Uh, on 15 plays that took up over nine yards of, of game uh, nine uh, nine minutes of game clock. So I think you know controlling the ball early was big for us. We felt like we needed to establish uh, the running attack, and I think they did that. The guys up front, in particular, in the offensive line, did a really good job being physical, moving the line of scrimmage all night. Uh, and Dylan Lobby was exceptional. You know, he had 32 carries for for 202 yards, career high, and three touchdowns.
0: Yeah, quite, quite a night uh, for Lobby and uh, the rest uh, of the Wildcats as well. You know, Rick, you mentioned the crowd, and, and you as a, as a former player and now coach uh, would be uh, a better judge of what impact a crowd has at, at a, any kind of a sporting event, but in this case, uh, a football game. Can a crowd have an, an impact on the game?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think in particular, you know, with our sport, there's so much verbal communication going on with, uh, you know, the guys up front having to make their checks, The quarterbacks have to I- identify, you know, the defensive intent. And then obviously the snap count. Um, so just trying to hear all those things, trying to make sure that we can still convey exactly the message we want to get out to the kids in real time. Um, that can be challenging. And it was pretty loud there at first. And that's why we kind of talked about in those environments, it's really critical to have early success, so you can try to minimize the, you know, the crowd noise and the damage that the opposing, you know, teams can do that way. So I thought we did a good job of kind of handling that environment.
0: Well, absolutely, and uh, as you mentioned, you took the lead in the first quarter and uh, never trailed in the ball game. How important is it to uh, to grab the lead uh, and hold on to it? You know, especially on the road.
1: It's critical. Uh, it's critical, and you looked at the first week. You know, Mama threw the first punch on us. We were down 7 nothing. They kind of had uh, the momentum of a lot of that game. We found, obviously, a way to finish it. You know, but we wanted to kind of flip the script on its head this week, find a way to come out early um, and, and kind of try to get get the Great Danes on their heels. I think we were able to do that. And then, you know, I think part of the game plan was to keep their offense off the field. You know, they had their three transfers that were extremely dynamic. You know, Todd Sibley, a, a bruising running back you know when he had the ball he broke a bunch of tackles all night and then their quarterback Poffenbarger, uh he's as athletic as the quarterback you're going to find at this level so we wanted to make sure we minimized the the amount of touches that those guys had and control the clock so that was great we we did that we controlled it for over 37 minutes which is awesome
0: yeah I mean you kept them at arm's length uh for the entire ball game really but they they never really went away however
1: no, we didn't expect him to, and yeah. I think that's that's a, a teachable moment for us. because I think we let up a little bit collectively, you know, as coaches as players with seven minutes to go. You know, we were we were feeling pretty good about it at one point in the second half. We were up twenty-one to three, um, and I think our guys kind of you know you can't do that. And in any game in particular, away game, and then obviously a team that's such as well coached as Albany is. So yeah, that's uh, that's a thing we got to learn from going forward. We got to find a way to, to put teams away.
0: Yeah, you certainly uh, held the time of possession battle. You you uh, controlled that uh, and kept them off the field as best you could, for sure. Uh, how was the play of the the special teams on Saturday night?
1: Uh, I thought that was another key pivotal piece. Sean Mahane, in particular, our punter. You know, he had five kicks for over 200 yards with a 40-yard average, um, which is which is a little bit above our goal, which is tremendous. He had a long of 54, and I think the key to that he had four punts inside the 20-yard line. Um, so not only the time-possession battle, you know, we won, I think, the field position battle as well. And that that was another thing which we felt like, you know, we wanted to make those guys have to drive the length of the field. Uh, we like our, our defense makeup and what we have on that side of the ball. Um, we figured, you know, we want to make it as hard as, as humanly possible if they had to go the distance quite often.
0: So On Saturday night at 6 in Durham, Wildcats will take on uh, 2-0 and North Carolina Central. Uh, a team, Rick, as you know, has scored sixty-nine points uh, in their first two victories.
1: Yeah, they are they're dynamic on offense. Um, you know, it's like a track meet. They got guys that can just flat out run all over. The skill position guys are loaded. Uh, they have a quarterback who's a, a three-year starter. Uh, he's made a lot of plays for them. You know, they're a team that's hot too. They they were four and one in their conference last year. They've won five straight games dating back to last year, including obviously starting two and zero. Um, you know they they beat a really good North Carolina A and T team to start the year, and A and T is going to join our conference next year. You know we had some crossover against them last year when I uh, we were scouting against Elon, um, and I believe they beat Elon, and which is obviously a very tough team in our conference. So six degrees separation. We know we know these guys are going to be really really tough, really ready to go. Um, so we you know, we got to hold court. It's the battle of the Durham. You know, Durham, uh, North Carolina versus the boys in Durham, New Hampshire.
0: <laughs> That's right. That, that, absolutely right. Six o'clock uh, in Durham, New Hampshire uh, this this Saturday night. That it, it should be a good one. Any particular emphasis uh, at practice this week?
1: You know what? I, um, I think it's just trying to you know level our guys out mentally, get get back to the here and now, work to stay present. You know, if we can. You know, we want to be defined by, by a vision of the future, not a memory of the past. But I also think you can you can pull for some past experiences. And what I mean by that is last year, you know, we started 3-0. and start, I I think we started to read the press clippings. We thought we were better than we were. So I think the challenge for us this year, and it's really an opportunity for us to be mentally tough, to be more disciplined that way, and to make sure that, you know, we're redefining ourselves every single week. You know, it's that 1-0 and mentality, um, as simple as it sounds. But we have to work extremely hard as coaches keep our guys grounded and to get better in practice.
0: So uh any uh, any injuries on uh, on Saturday?
1: Um you know Monday's the big day when we get the kind of final injury report so we'll know more this afternoon. Nothing too glaring. Uh Brosmer strained his calf a little bit, but I think it's nothing that's going to hold him out. We had a couple couple tweaks i mean it was a physical game there was definitely some bumps and bruises i know still lobby had like a, an ice pack on, on every joint of his body after that one but i think uh, nothing that's going to hold the guys out
0: now, i can imagine as you mentioned 32 carries he, he really uh, carried the load uh that night uh saturday night for the wildcats exactly yeah well coach rick santos thanks again for joining us here on this uh monday morning and uh We wish you the best uh, during practice this week and, of course, the big game uh, Saturday night at 6 o'clock in Durham uh, against North Carolina Central, and uh, we'll talk to you in a
1: week. Thanks, Ken. Really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up.
0: All right. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Head coach Rick Santos of the UNH Wildcats and another win on Saturday night, A, a solid victory over a very good opponent, the University of Albany. And the Wildcats coming away with a uh, 28-23 victory. So congratulations to them. And uh, also congratulations to the uh, Concord High Crimson Tide uh, football team. They got into the victory column on Saturday as they defeated uh, Keene, 48-13. And uh, in that game, uh, the Concord running back, Ilya Bahuma, Yilia Bahuma of Concord High School rushed for 305 yards and three rushing touchdowns. Oh, The uh, Crimson Tide will be hosting 0-2 Manchester Central this Saturday afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock at Memorial Field right in our backyard Here at uh, WKXL. So the Crimson Tide. Now one and one. And again, congratulations to Ilya Bahuma. B-A-H-U-M-A. I believe that's the way you pronounce his last name. Bahuma. 305 yards. Just to give you some sense of comparison. And, you know, you're really comparing apples and oranges. High school football to the NFL. But the NFL record for rushing yardage in a game is 296 by Vikings running back Adrian Peterson. That was on November 4th, 2007, against the San Diego Chargers. The then San Diego Chargers. And even though they've been in Los Angeles now for a few years, I'll probably be calling them the uh, San Diego Chargers for a long, long time. Hey, listen, I still refer to them as the Baltimore Colts sometimes. Probably too often. We have more NFL news uh, coming up. More bad news for the Dallas Cowboys. Not only did they lose to Tom Brady and Tampa Bay last night, they've lost their quarterback for a while, too. More on that coming up, and then later on in the show, we'll talk UFOs. Here on Kale & Company Live, WKXL, news and talk around the clock, NH Talk Radio Com. Stay with us. We will be right back. It's Kale & Company live here on WKXL. 1450 AM, 1039 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond. And streaming at nhtalkradio.com. Saturday, by the way, uh, we've talked about it uh, from time to time here on the program, Uh, the baseball experience at Delta Dental Stadium in uh, Manchester. I got a chance to uh, chat with uh, a number of WKXL listeners uh, who were there, and it was a a beautiful night, a beautiful night for the event, and lots of uh, great baseball talk and memories Bill Lee was there. And, and, you know, we, uh, like, just less than a week uh, before uh, this event on Saturday at Delta Dental Stadium, we had heard that Bill Lee, while warming up for a relief stint for the Savannah Bananas baseball team, uh, had collapsed and was rushed to the hospital and, uh, you know, was in real serious condition. Uh, but he bounced back, and he looked as good as new on Saturday night. In fact, uh, he pitched some batting practice to some of the folks who were were swinging for charity at the event, and uh, that was uh, terrific. It was all for the benefit of the Fisher Cats Foundation and Chad Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. It was the first time the event has ever been held outdoors at uh, Delta Dental Stadium prior to that it had been at the uh, Doubletree Inn uh, in downtown Manchester, like diagonally across from uh, SNHU Arena. And I, I think, uh, you know, there wasn't the, uh, the uh, crowd that we had hoped for. Uh, however, uh, a, a good turnout, a beautiful night. Food was great. Wade Boggs was there. It was great to see Wade Boggs, very personable, took a lot of pictures with people, signed a ton of autographs. Uh, former Red Sox relievers Bob Stanley and Dick Grego were in attendance as well. And, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Bill Lee and uh, Rico Petroselli was there, Red Sox Hall of Famer, who famously caught that final out on October 1st, 1967, when the Red Sox uh, went to the World Series for the first time in 21 years. Rico caught the final out in the American League clinching game against the Minnesota Twins. And Rico has been a guest here on uh, WKXL with us in the past and and will be again in the future. In fact, uh, Tom Raffio and uh, Kitty Ray both in attendance uh, at the event on Saturday, and we talked to Rico. And, you know, Rico, I think he, he would like to be a part of the fun bunch. So uh, one of these Fridays – We're going to have Rico Petroselli, former Red Sox great, as part of our Friday Fun Bunch here at WKXL. Speaking of fun, there was not much of it uh, for the Patriots in Miami yesterday, and not only did they lose the game 20-7, but Mac Jones, Patriots quarterback, suffered a back injury in the season opener, and uh, he required x-rays. Following the ball game, he was not available to the media. Normally, you know, the quarterback has a session with the media uh, almost uh, immediately after the game, but uh, he had to skip that because of the x-rays and the back pain. But uh, Bill Belichick did report that Jones traveled back uh, with the rest of the team from Miami. Uh, Belichick was asked about his understanding of the injury, and he said, I know everybody is hungry for an up-to-the-second report But honestly, the best way to handle these situations is to honestly give it a little time, see what happens, run whatever tests or analysis that need to be run, and then go from there. So that's what we always do. That's what we're doing. And that's what we're going to do in this case. Uh, That's uh, what we're going to do in every other case with any other injury as well. So Patriots will try to get their first win of the year on uh, Sunday in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jones is backed up by the veteran Brian Hoyer, who has seen uh, some action in his days as a Patriots backup to to Tom Brady and to Cam Newton, his one year that uh, Cam was with the Patriots, and rookie Bailey Zappi. So uh, there you go. Jones played the entire game, though. And uh, he he got blindsided, which uh, resulted in a Miami touchdown in that ball game yesterday. The offensive line is scary. The Patriots' offensive line is scary bad, not scary good. It's scary bad. And, you know, every time, you have to think that every time Mac Jones or any other Patriots quarterback uh, goes back to pass, they're in danger because the offensive line uh, was not impressive yesterday. Hopefully it'll get better. Uh, the offensive line is certainly an issue. I thought, generally speaking, generally speaking, the uh, Patriots defense played pretty well. I and mean, one of the touchdowns came uh, as a result of uh, Mac Jones being blindsided. He fumbled the football. The ball was recovered by Miami, and uh, they went in for a score. Uh, so that accounted for seven of their 20 points. And... Uh, the other touchdown was uh, really, uh, well, it was late in the first half. It was a fourth and seven for uh, Miami. And, uh, and well, Tua threw a touchdown pass and uh, to Waddle. He was defended by three Patriots, but Waddle made the catch anyway in a crowd and then uh, ran in for the score. And that was a backbreaker. That uh, touchdown right at the end of the first half was a backbreaker for the Patriots yesterday. Again, they uh, wound up losing 20-7 in their season opener. I mean, even in the glory days of Tom Brady, the Patriots never fared all that well uh, in Miami. It's always been uh, a tough place for the Patriots to play, and they had to play yesterday in uh, 100-degree weather. Uh, There were reports that it was like 110 uh, on the, the the surface of the field, and uh, you know, no excuses because both teams are on the same field. But you have to think Miami's a little bit more accustomed to that kind of weather than the Patriots. But the Patriots didn't lose because of the weather; uh, they lost because their their offensive line uh, could not do the job. And not only didn't they do the job, but uh, as a result of you know, a couple of hits. I'm not sure if it was the time that he was blindsided or where the injury took place. He played the entire game. Mac Jones, we're talking about here, but uh, we'll see if he plays Sunday when the Patriots travel to Pittsburgh to take on the Steelers. So, Patriots 0 and 1 on the year. Steelers a 1 and 0 on the year. They they won an incredible overtime game yesterday against Cincinnati as time expired. Cincinnati had numerous occasions uh, to win that ball game, but their long snapper, Cincinnati's long snapper, the guy who does the snapping on the extra points and field goals and punts, well, he was injured, so they had to use a backup. A guy who probably has, hasn't long snapped in a while, he was forced into that situation, and it cost them. As uh, they missed an extra point and a couple of field goals, Uh, Cincinnati could have won that ball game at home, but Pittsburgh prevailed as time expired 23-20. The Steelers uh, winning that ball game. So we mentioned uh, the Dallas-Tampa Bay game last night in passing at the start of the show. And uh, Dallas lost to Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Very efficient performance offensively and defensively by Tampa Bay. So Dallas goes down to defeat in their home opener in front of Jerry Jones and the rest of the world. And now we find out that Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, who was healthy, uh, he's had numerous injuries over the years, was very healthy in training camp, had a full training camp, uh, was uh, you know reportedly as healthy as he's ever been during his NFL career. Well, not so much. He's going to miss multiple weeks after suffering a hand injury that is going to require surgery. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones said Sunday night, after his team lost to Tampa Bay, told reporters after the game that Prescott needs surgery on a joint above the thumb on his throwing hand, and he is going to be out for a while. It says the Cowboys medical staff told Prescott that he suffered a clean break. The time frame for his return is unclear. As of Sunday night, he said uh, that he expects to have surgery sometime today. So just another bump in the road, said Prescott, who missed 11 games in 2020 after suffering a compound fracture and dislocation to his right ankle and one game last season due to a calf strain. So Dak Prescott will be out of the Cowboys lineup for a few weeks anyway and uh, he'll be uh, backed up by Cooper Rush Cooper Rush not exactly a household name All right, coming up we're going to talk UFOs I know you'll want to hear this discussion it is coming up right after this break Kale and Company Live, WKXL news and talk around the clock nhtalkradio.com stay with us KL & Company live on this Monday. A delight to have you along with us here at WKXL. News and talk around the clock. NHtalkradio.com. 1450 on the AM dial. 1039 in the Capital Region. 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond. And very pleased to have with us this morning on the program, the editor of New Hampshire Magazine, Rick Broussard. Rick, how are you today? I'm splendid. Ken, good to talk to you. Well, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to chat with you. And uh, I know in uh, your September edition of New Hampshire Magazine, you uh, you know throw back the curtain on UFOs, or as they uh, call them now in, in government talk, unidentified aerial phenomenon. So, uh, Rick, why the decision to uh, probe so deep on on the UFO story?
2: So probe. That's a that's that's a little uh, that's a foreshadowing, I think. And,
0: um, yeah.
2: Uh, well, if you're like me, you were fascinated by UFOs when you were young, and that was sort of the heyday of them, the '60s. I mean, if, if you
0: were my age, <laughs> and, yes. Oh yes. Um, oh yeah. And, um, In the same ballpark, anyway, Rick.
2: <laughs> right, and and you know, I I I used to pick up fake magazine and all those the, the little pulps with UFO stories in them. I just found them fascinating. I I tried to fake uh, a UFO, you know, photograph like like all you know good UFO buffs do at one point. And um, and then you know I, I just got busy with my life, had kids, kind of went on, and and I would think about this. And it just always struck me as what in the world was that all about? You know, is it can't it can't have been nothing because there was so much interest in it. But then you can imagine this is just the way people's minds work. And But I, something happened not that long ago, pretty much in the, in the last 10 years, frankly. There's been um, what, what I think it took place is our sensors and our ability to to sort of map the almost unseen parts of our world have gotten so good that it's just gotten to where the people that have been seeing these things for a long time, pilots and people in the military, suddenly could not deny them because they had evidence of this. And of course there was some film uh, that was revealed from uh, 2004 that, you know, with the the Nimitz incident people involved with UFOs will know what I'm talking about. Those who won't, what happened is they have cameras now that just pick up stuff that, you know, is barely visible even to, to uh, even to radar sometimes. And so they have all this evidence and uh, it's irrefutable. And suddenly the politicians are getting interested in this. Yeah. What's being kept from us? What are the secrets that are being held? And these are the same questions that we asked ourselves when we were 13 years old. You know, Why are they keeping secrets? Well, now the people asking that are congressmen and senators. And so something's happening on this front. And we just figured, let's get ahead of it. We, we, we know these stories. Most people know the great UFO stories. Well, not, that's not true. Not most people, because most people aren't interested. Most people who are interested in this know about the incident at Exeter, Uh, which took place, you know, in in Exeter in, uh, basically, in um, 1965. And then prior to that, the uh, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. And they probably know that these are the two great forms of UFO legend, a close encounter with a mysterious object, usually at night, inexplicable movements, other witnesses, you know, behavior, strange behavior of animals, and then the abduction story, which almost sounds like it's, Pure science fiction. You know, you're suddenly hustled aboard or beamed aboard some kind of a strange craft by small people with large heads and big eyes wearing uniforms who probe you. <laughs> and and they, they sound so ridiculous on the face of it, you just want to discount them. But the problem is, we can't anymore. So we did this story to kind of familiarize people with the great history that New Hampshire has on this topic so that whatever happens in the next months or, or year. At least they know where we stand in that great saga that seems to be unfolding.
0: UFOs, unexplained, fantastical observations. I love that. That's that's. A, who came up with that one?
2: My art director.
0: <laughs> there you go. And uh, it is the cover story from the September 2022 issue of New Hampshire Magazine. And you mentioned uh, the uh, uh, alluded to anyway the uh, Betty and Barney Hill incident. Uh, which took place on September nineteenth and twentieth of nineteen sixty-one. So we're almost coming up to the fifty-first uh, anniversary of right. uh, of that event, right? Yeah, right. And, yeah,
2: yeah. And, and sadly, the fiftieth yeah. anniversary. Yeah. And the other reason we did this in uh, in September. No,
0: sixty-first. Right, sixty-first right. anniversary. Right. Yeah, sixty-first right. anniversary.
2: Right. Uh, but it's because the the, uh, the city of, of Exeter has a UFO festival every year. It's, it happened uh, it's first, second and third of this month, and but they did not have one last year, and so uh, we figured this would be a chance to kind of catch that wave and also help them a little bit, uh, raising some interest about the fact that we here in New Hampshire have one of the capitals, one of the nodes of the of the great UFO story right here. You know, it's not just Roswell that has. Uh, an incredible story to tell regarding unidentified fantastical observations.
0: Yeah. Now it's an interesting tidbit that uh, New Hampshire is the sixth, sixth most likely state to spot a UFO or a UAP, as the uh, government is calling it now, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, New Hampshire has eighty-five, eighty-five significant. Uh, UFO sightings for every 100,000 people in the state. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way, that's the way you broke it down. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, it's it's better odds than the lottery.
0: Much better, much better. <laughs> You're more likely to spot a UFO in New Hampshire than uh, win Mega Bucks or, well, or, yeah. or one of those games. Anyway, yeah. but even the, a, even a scratch ticket, probably. <laughs> even a scratch ticket sometimes. Yes. But the, the Betty and Barney Hill, that that I mean, that drew national worldwide attention, really. That was a, a worldwide story uh, back in the day. And there's even a, a New Hampshire historical marker, number zero two two four, which is placed near the area uh, of, of the incident, and uh, it, it took place in Lincoln, New Hampshire, uh, you know, on, on Route three, and the uh, historical marker is there. Uh, There's a 92-word description of what happened, but uh, uh, there was a line in that description, Rick, that was not totally accurate, and uh, that was, and I quote, they filed an official Air Force uh, Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day. This was after they spotted the UFO, or the UFO spotted them. But they were not public with their story until it was learned uh, in the Boston Traveler. It was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. But that's not exactly true. They did tell friends. They, they shared it with uh, uh, colleagues and uh, uh, coworkers and what have you. And they did file two reports. And I know for a fact that uh, at some point between uh, 61 and 65, when you know, the news broke in the Boston Traveler, that they were actually on the radio with Larry Glick uh, in Boston on a, on a radio show, uh, so they didn't actually try to hide it. But you know, they they talked about some ra- rather bizarre things uh, that took place uh, to them. Right.
2: Well, that, they were not a they they were not a squeamish couple. You know, they were an interracial couple, yeah. at at times when that was very odd. And they were both um, activists of a sort. They were both publicly involved, yeah. and they were both public people with lots of friends. Um, that that road marker, which was a great coup for, I guess, for the, you know, for, for travel and tourism as well as for the, for the UFO buff in us all. Um, uh, it, it's great to have it there, but one thing that this field does tend to develop is a lot of sticklers because everybody's arguing over data and information. And it seems that some people feel like we've got to keep the record straight on this because it's already mushy and, and fantastic. And if we're not accurate, then we're not going to be taken seriously. And there's a guy named Bryce Zabel, who uh, he's been studying the uh, Betty and Barney Hill story for years. He he, he basically is, he's got Betty Hill's, uh, or actually her niece's book, all about uh, this under contract to develop into a TV series or something. But he, he also developed a series called Dark Skies some time ago, which was about the UFO, uh, sort of a fictionalized version of UFO truth, and he did one whole episode devoted to this. So he's totally into this story. And when he read that highway marker with just those few words, and he found it, you know, what he considered to be a bad error, he actually petitioned the uh, the Division of Historical Resources to correct the sign, which they've agreed to do, which is pretty pretty big, I think, of them, because it's, it's the sort of thing that a lot of people might just blow off. It, but the main thing he was concerned about was the fact that a man uh, named... Uh, it was it, His name was Luttrell, uh, John Luttrell, who'd been working for the Boston Traveler. And he did all the shoe leather reporting. He w- he took the story seriously enough to, to dig into it. And he was the one who pretty much put all the pieces together and made it into a public story that later on, uh, a fa- fairly famous writer named John Fuller came in and wrote a book called The Interrupted Journey, which made the story very famous, and it became a film. And- um, but but he did not want that original journalist who actually did the work for his work to get uh, forgotten. Um, and actually, in many ways, he was a more accurate reporter on the story. So he appreciated the shoe leather reporting. He just wanted to make sure that was credited on the sign.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, Rick Broussard is with us. Uh, Rick, can you stay with us for a few more minutes? I'd love to. Uh, Rick is the editor of New Hampshire Magazine, and wow, they have uh, dedicated much of the magazine to UFOs, unexplained, fantastical observations, and uh, we'll delve more into it coming up after this break on WKXL. Kale and Company live for a Monday. If you missed any part of this show, you can hear it again just after 7 o'clock tonight here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Don't you dare... Touch that dial. Welcome back. Kale and Company live for a Monday. Great to have you with us. Rick Broussard is with us as well. He's the editor of New Hampshire Magazine. And in the September edition, Area 603 is featured. UFOs, unexplained, fantastical observations, or as the government calls them now, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And uh, Rick, uh, some, some great articles uh, in, uh, in New Hampshire Magazine about UFOs uh, this month. So people should pick it up and uh, well, they should pick it up anytime, but uh, especially if they're interested in UFOs this month. Uh, 65, you mentioned there was another uh, well-publicized uh, UFO sighting, this one in, in Exeter. How did that one, uh, how did that one play out?
2: Well, it, it, the interesting thing about it was that it, so many people did witness this, but the story kind of boiled down, as narratives tend to, to this one young man uh, who uh, he, he witnessed this happening. There's a specific, you know, telephone pole uh, that it's actually right out on the edge of Exeter where he witnessed this, but he uh, he ran he went into Exeter looking for help because he was just so terrified and it turned out that the police had been getting lots of additional reports and, uh, and actually they, they were, uh, he was accompanied, um, out to back to the spite to the spot, but with some Exeter police officers who saw and actually pulled it, pulled a revolver, a service revolver in, in fear. And it, that sounds nowadays, you know, with the, the way that we've expanded, you know, the stories about this somewhat everything from, you know, men in black, um, and on, it doesn't sound that spectacular. But what was so telling about it was that there, it was just in, uh, unexp- inexplicable. So many people witnessed this thing. They came up with really bizarre theories to explain what it could have been that made much less sense. Well, not that necessarily an alien craft or we didn't know what it was, but it was definitely not any of the things that, that uh, the, the Air Force put forth that it might have been. So that story took hold also and it was written also by John Fuller, who was a he was a very uh prodigious writer of that period, um into a, a book simply called The Incident at Exeter. And that's largely what the Exeter UFO Festival celebrates every year. Although it's funny that both Betty and Barney Hill and <laughs> Norman Muscarello, who was the individual in the Incident at Exeter, both were from the Exeter, you know, area, were were natives to the New Hampshire Seacoast. Uh, were living there at the time, and it says something about that, perhaps about that region. And by the way, one of the things that it may say about that region, according to some people that I know, is that at that time, the 509 bomber uh, uh, division, uh, that's probably not correct term, were stationed there. It was basically nuclear bombers. This was the uh, the same flight group that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. But they had uh, a, a. They were stationed at Pease at that time, mm. and one of the things that seems to be the case about these these whatever they are is that they are very attracted to our our, our nuclear power demonstrations, nuclear plants, nuclear weapons, um, nuclear missile sites. That those tend to be places where they congregate, where they're more likely to be seen. Nuclear aircraft carriers and submarines tend to spot these things. Which, by the way, I I, I just have to—people who are not following this story, you should know that the next thing we're going to be hearing a lot about is not UFOs, but USOs, which is Unidentified Submerged Objects. Because apparently, these objects are what they call transmedium um, in their abilities. They can actually go from space to the atmosphere to the water— Uh, no. Nothing. Nothing. We have anything. Like. We have. Not, we are nowhere near having a, a, a device that can come out of the water, do circles in the air, and then fly <laughs> up into space. But that's what radar and evidence seems to be indicating that these devices, creatures, whatever they are, are capable of doing. So there's a lot of mystery about this still, but it's it's begun to take shape around patterns and around consistency and and the and the way that the descriptions are. Being offered, and then finally by technology. Just simply the fact that we have such good sensors now that, in response to what people have learned re- recently, they're uh, they are now setting up. Like not NASA has a, you know, this is a small hundred thousand dollar program to start cataloging their own discoveries. And at Harvard, this guy named Avi Loeb who uh, he's a uh, he's an a, a astronomer there. Uh, they have set it, they're setting up sensors on the roof of Harvard to suddenly track the sky in 360 degrees and just look for anomalous behavior up there. And they call it the Galileo Project. Basically say, look, we're going to put a telescope on the sky, we're going to tell you everything we're seeing up there, and then you tell us what that all is. And, they, and they're and they already getting some interesting results from that. So it'll be a while before we hear the, uh, you know, because this is pure, this is real science. Yeah. And they're doing it meticulously. But what they're trying to do is simply come up with the definitive statement that says, okay, you explain this by anything other than an a, 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 a conscious intelligence that is doing things on this planet that is not human intelligence. And that seems to be where, we're, where the this is settling, is there is some sort of an additional intelligence here. Now, maybe it's behaving the way it is, maybe it's appearing the way it is, because that's the way it manipulates our brains to see it. You know, maybe we fill in the gaps kind of the way we do with dreams. And that's why we see these peculiar, you know, they look, the, the flying saucers that people describe look like toys with little lights running around and windows and little alien faces looking at. It's almost too ridiculous, but that's what they all report seeing. So the question is, is it possible that aliens actually we little uniforms and all little green, they're not necessarily green, but little men with <laughs> yeah. big heads staring out at windows at it. Oh, so sure. Yeah. The brain processes what, what's happening in these encounters.
0: Well, you know, there's certainly a, a lot of people uh, believe that there is something out there. They did a, a Gallup poll in 2021. 41% of Americans believe that some UFOs or UAPs are of alien origin. So quite a few people do believe that, Rick.
2: Right, but I mean, that that means nothing because a lot of people believe a lot of silly things, you know. So the the real question is, what does the evidence say? And until very recently, there was there were not many people doing any kind of rigorous scientific work on this because it seems so absurd, and also because there apparently has been a very deliberate effort to make research into this area seem ridiculous and to you know belittle those. I mean, it people who are involved in this uh, from academia will tell you that. If, you're, if this is something that you're interested in, you're going to be cutting off your you know your future funding for uh, for more serious projects. And that's that was a pattern that was established early on back in the 50s when during the first sightings, you know the, uh, the Roswell incident, which is about 75 years old mm-hmm. I mean a lot of people feel like oh well that was all resolved. it was a weather balloon. absolutely that, that's one of the least likely things that Roswell could have been. And, and it, once again, if you if you look into it and study it, you'll find out there is at very least a great mystery there. Whether it's an enormous conspiracy by the government and some alien intelligence to prevent us from knowing something, well, that's to be proven. But that's certainly an arguable point of view based on what we know about incidences like Roswell. There are, there have been a lot of other crashes, by the way. Well, Roswell's not the only one that's claimed to be a crash of a, a vehicle from which there were bodies and and technology were covered and, and placed somewhere, you know, and being studied to this day.
0: So what's the reaction been uh, thus far, Rick, to your September edition of uh, New Hampshire Magazine? Well, we've gotten more media than usual. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, there, uh, there because you it go.
2: Is, it, it, You know, it, look, it's a juicy subject. And, and <laughs> uh, on the one hand, it, it appeals to people just as, you know, novelty. But I think increasingly people are looking for answers. I, I think we all know that the world is in a kind of sorry state right now. Not not fundamentally. I mean, we're all. I mean, probably people are better off than they've ever been. But in terms of our, you know, where we're going and why why we're going there, and um, you know, what's it all about? I think those questions are becoming much more powerfully reckoned with in, in our world today. And this seems like it's information that we need if we're going to. If we're going to make any plans for humanity's future, we need to get this resolved. Because it may well be that not only, you know, are are we having visitors from somewhere else, but they may have been here all along.
0: Quite true. Quite true. Well, certainly lots tons of unanswered questions uh, are, are still out there and and will be for many many years to come but uh, Congress as you said held its uh, first public hearing on UFOs in a half century so I, I think they're they're taking it seriously
2: they're taking it very seriously and there's there's things in it that are happening now that will be very difficult to to reverse um, not not only on the legislative level but on the research level because this is now there is some funding for research into this and it does not immediately brand you as an idiot or a lunatic if you're interested in it the the only place that you know we can go with this is more data more just uh, basically conclusions from that data more theories about what it all means and I think it it means that we're going to have a very exciting year uh ahead as far as UFO studies are concerned, assuming, you know, we weather all of the other <laughs> conditions that, of our planet. Uh, that's true.
0: Very true. Long
2: Good. enough to enjoy those stories. Good. So we'll
0: see. Good point. But uh, a great edition of New Hampshire Magazine, Rick Broussard, uh, editor of New Hampshire Magazine, with us. And uh, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us on this Monday. My pleasure, Ken. All right. Take care, Rick.